Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair with part 11 of David Cayley's series, The Education Debates. Our subject in this episode is multiculturalism and the questions it raises for public education. In recent years, multiculturalism has been the rationale for a movement to broaden the curriculum of education and diversify the character of public schools. Supporters of this movement have argued that the existing curriculum is a deposit of racism, colonialism and patriarchy and must be overhauled. Opponents have criticised the movement for creating a culture of complaint and for breaking education up into non-communicating enclaves like black studies, native studies, women's studies and so on. Tonight, we look into some of these questions. The programme begins with philosopher Charles Taylor's argument that multiculturalism, or what he calls the politics of recognition, is an inescapable part of contemporary existence. This leads to the question of whether demands for recognition mandate more inclusive common schools or separate schools for separate groups. We look at both sides of the question beginning with the case for state funding of private religious schools and concluding with a teacher who introduced courses in black history at his Scarborough, Ontario high school. The Education Debates, Part 11, by David Cayley. Public education in Canada was founded on the idea of the common school. At the very inception of Upper Canada's school system in the 1840s, its architect, Edgerton Ryerson, spoke feelingly of the children of the rich and the poor imbibing the first elements of knowledge at the same fountain and commencing the race of life upon equal terms. In practice, the well-off rarely attended public schools, but Ryerson's ideal persisted and gradually drew most of the population into a common system of education with a common curriculum. Underlying this system, was an assumption that students shared a common culture, a common religious heritage, and a common sense of where each fit in the social order. In the writing of Ryerson's I Just Quoted, for example, he goes on to say that the mutual respect and sympathy he hoped the common school would engender between classes should in no respect intrude upon the providential arrangements of order and rank in society, but only divest poverty of its meanness and wealth of its arrogance. Schooling involved socialization into an assumed and, if necessary, imposed consensus. This consensus no longer exists. Canada was declared an officially multicultural society by the Trudeau government in 1971. Various court decisions have since deprived Christianity of any official or privileged position in the public schools. Native people have reclaimed the standing of distinct Aboriginal nations with rights of self-government, including control over their own education. Many other groups have also demanded recognition and some sort of special status. Deep and seemingly unbridgeable gulfs have opened between citizens on moral questions, like abortion or the right of gays to marry and rear children. In the 1995 Egan case, for example, in which a majority of the Supreme Court broadened the definition of family to include homosexual unions, a broad coalition of Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims and Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, told the court that their tradition stood unalterably opposed to the idea. 
abortion polarizes opinion in a similarly fundamental way. This new pluralistic society in which people are defined by their differences is the site of what Charles Taylor calls the politics of recognition. The implications for education are profound, and I'll come to them presently. But first, I want to explore what Taylor means more generally by this expression. He argues, first of all, that the problem is characteristically modern. In pre-modern societies, he says, people conducted most of their significant social relations within their own enclaves. Relations with outsiders were rigidly prescribed and raised no question of recognition or identity. Signs of a change in this view began to appear in the 18th century with the writings of French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You see, what this issue of recognition can be understood as is a new modern twist on the issue of honour and dignity and the possible dishonour and so on. And what you have in Rousseau is a new, new position on this. You either had people beforehand who thought that honour and dignity were important and they had an ethic where, you know, someone should live up to their honour code and so on, or you had a very powerful tradition, which you have in Plato and you have in Augustine and Christianity. It says this honour stuff is pride, it's, it's, it's bad, it's negative, you shouldn't think about that. Putting your life into that is completely the wrong thing, you should scrap it, right? Instead of tremendous anti-honour polemic. Now Rousseau comes along with a new position, which is a kind of marriage of these two, because he very strongly draws on the critique of the honor ethic in order to say that people who are concerned for how they look in the eyes of others are completely, you know, missed the boat. That's, I mean, Stoic said this. I mean, exactly, he reproduces a lot of this critique of the, of the honor ethic. So just where you think you're on familiar ground, if you're a reader of the Stoics, you think that's okay, he's going to say, forget all this, set it aside. No, he suddenly switches, and he proposes a new solution, which is, I mean, we would call today a kind of mutual recognition in total equality. What's wrong with honor, it turns out, is that it is always hierarchically and in, uh, unequally distributed. That it, What's wrong with the search for honors it normally is seen is that I want everyone to depend on me and not depend on anyone else. The way out is to have absolute equality, if you like, identity of the honorer and the honoree. And we can only do this, of course, he thinks socially, right? So he develops these very powerful requirements on a just society which have been haunting us ever since, which is uh, there's a series of very important relationships that are crucial to both power and and honor that you have to reorganize so that there is an identity between the terms on both sides of the relationship. So there's power over, sovereignty over. Well, there can't any longer be a king who's sovereign over people, but it's got to be the whole people who is sovereign over the whole people. Right? You can't have any just different relationship to power between A and B, because that will break with. And he uh, has this same requirement in sort of the display of ourselves to ourselves, right? Where, where in some societies, hierarchical societies, the king makes a progress and enters this, uh, the power of people around him, everyone, we'd all look at princess, I mean, alas, it's a, et cetera, and that sort of thing. No, the, the, the great popular festival must be the whole people 
parading before or enjoying itself, etc., before the whole people, right? The, the spectators and spectated have to be rigorously the same. That's why he's, of course, terribly against theater. Same thing, because there you have some people on stage and some people in the dark, not expressing themselves, but simply looking at the people on stage. This, this ideal, you know, is taken up by the French revolutionaries, and it's very interesting. A lot of the design of those feasts that they try to put together in the 1790s, desperately trying to create the new political culture in, in, in France, they read Rousseau and they actually picked up on that. And you, and you can see many of the people who designed those said we're meeting this requirement. So a lot of the revolutionary festivals had the whole public parading before itself, as it were, everybody was involved in the parade on the, on the feast day. Now here you get an idea in which, theory in which, being what we would call today recognized, being acknowledged, is not forgotten, right? You get this tremendous polemic against it, like the Stoics, but it's not to say, you know, forget that, just think about your own conscience or think about your own inner self. No, it's not forgotten, but the issue of right and wrong here, good and bad, is uh, is transposed into an issue of whether it's radically reciprocal, egalitarian, everybody on the same footing, or whether it has this terrible vice of inequality, of dependence of some on others. And that becomes the, the new issue. And in a sense, that was the birth point, theoretically, of this modern concern. Rousseau's solution to the problem of honor led in time to the unstable politics of recognition that we know today. His intention was to protect the unique inward identity of each individual from a distorting dependence on the opinion of others. But his proposal moved towards an equality so absolute that it threatened all differences. This was the tendency that was manifest in the Jacobins of the French Revolution, and that has continued, Taylor says, to this day. If we all had the same identity, this problem wouldn't arise. It's only because there are these differences that they can be misrecognized. I mean, that's why the Jacobins were, in a way, onto something, not that it would ever work, but they did see that the nature of a modern egalitarian society is such that it would obviously run a lot better if everybody defined themselves, let's say, purely as a citizen of the French Republic, in which they were like everybody else, and if they took anything that differentiated them, like their religion or a region and so on, and they put it into a second category of less important stuff, right? Then uh, the problems of recognition, modern problems, wouldn't exist. That's why there has been this constant temptation. Moves are constantly made in the political checkerboard to get this problem off the table by making everybody the same or getting everybody to agree that for political purposes what ought to be important to them and their identity is only X, right? And that the things that are different ought to be put in a second category where they don't count and they aren't really, don't need to impinge on the political scene. Some people say, well, I mean, all you really need as citizen is that, that you are a bearer of certain rights. Canadian Charter gives you your rights. That's what matters to you as a citizen. And what's this business about you want to be you know, French or English? or uh, Take that off the table. There's a an awful lot of 
moves of this kind, which are part of the, the whole game and struggle about identity. Not, in other words, I refuse to recognize your identity, but don't ask me to recognize your difference. Ask me only to recognize the way in which you're the same as me, and then there'd be no problem. Uh, this responds to the intuition people have that, in a way, it would all go much easier if we could just set these things aside, only that that's too much to ask of certain people, yeah. But there's also this other movement then, which is the flight into difference, yes? Yeah. That you can't understand me, you yes. can't write from my point of view, however it's expressed. Yeah, now that's the move, which I said was a very tempting move in cases of, of uh, really tough sledding with identity recognition, which is to say, we don't need this. We need to be recognized by somebody, but we don't need you to recognize us anymore. Right? We're declaring our independence, as it were, from you as an interlocutor. Right? And we have to be clear about this, that, that uh, human beings need certain interlocutors and not others in crucial identity moments. For instance, I mean, kids growing up in a family where there's big problems about his or her being accepted, it, it may not help if some totally unrelated person says, I, I, it may, but it may not, if somebody says, I understand you. What that kid may really need is recognition by, well, what Mead calls significant others, maybe the parents, maybe <clears throat> narrower groups. So it's clear that uh, when we need recognition, very often we need it from certain people and not from others. It's part of the dynamic of a modern citizen democracy because it tends to, anyway, have the ideology of everybody's in it together, we're all in it together. It tends to be the case that we need it from our compatriots, our concitoyens, right? But then you get the move you see among, for instance, certain African-Americans of saying about the white citizens, no, we don't need it from you. Or the move that says, even further, don't even, you know, it's even an act of aggression on your part to try to understand us because only we can understand ourselves and don't even make the attempt. But in fact, a lot of this, you can't understand us, is a move in a game, continuing game, of getting recognition. Right? So there's something not entirely upfront about it. In other words, there's still an attempt to grab the attention to lay guilt on the other and so on, involved in making these, these moves. So it's profoundly other-referring move while it pretends to be a completely you know, other cutting off move. That's what I mean by bad faith. There's a, a real conflict between the actual human meaning of the move and the overt content of it, the overt, overt claim. In Charles Taylor's view, tension between identity and difference is inherent in the very existence of citizen democracies. Citizens share a collective identity, yet remain profoundly and irreducibly different. Taylor sees this as a situation requiring dialogue, accommodation, and a willingness to live in a variegated, asymmetrical world that cannot be neatly resolved into universal categories or mapped onto a uniform Cartesian grid. But Canada's case shows how difficult it can be to achieve this kind of accommodation in practice. The attempt to work something out, he says, is always menaced by the desire for logical, clear-cut solutions. You have various people that don't accept this point. They are uneasy with these kind of differences, and the only general solution they'd accept would be the uniformizing Jacobin one, really. 
So they have great trouble with the ad hocery. There's going to be a certain ad hocery in, in working out just how can we coexist with what kinds of recognition between ourselves can we actually find a terrain where we can feel together on this, right? This, and it's going to vary from country to country, and it's not going to be universal principle. It's going to be messy. It's going to be illogical. It's going to be historically conditioned. And, so and there are people who find this extremely hard to take, whose idea of a properly running society is one in which fundamentally there's this uniformity which dominates. And it comes in Canada in two flavors. I mean, roughly the, you know, Quebec separatist one, which is very, very Jacobin in its, all its fibers, and the rest of Canada, you know, refusing of Quebec difference one, which is much more hooked into as a uh, Anglo-Saxon tradition. And um, the existence of the country is constantly in peril because these, when these two forces together get strong enough to strangle the, the middle, as it were, the existence of the country is always on the edge of the, of the uh, precipice. The spirit of improvisation that Taylor thinks would preserve Canada without destroying its differences should, in his view, also guide the revision of the curriculum of education. The curriculum, he believes, should certainly be broadened to include previously excluded groups and stories. But this should be done only as it becomes possible to do it well, and not according to some mechanical, prefabricated notion of equality. The desire to apply, again, universal principles of fairness really gets in the way here. In other words, because if you start to think in terms of what's just and right here, you're going to think in terms of, we've got to tell all the stories or none, and then that's going to end up, you know, almost always pushing you towards a, uh, what effectively is not, I mean, a very watered-down version in which a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of the other gets, gets a look in, but nobody gets really fired up with something in one or other of these great traditions so that it really means something to you and you can take it, you know, either read further or even write further or whatever in your life. It isn't going to answer this requirement if you have a, you know, a tiny bit of the I Ching and a tiny bit of the, you know, two pages of an Aboriginal uh, myth and one half of a sonnet by Shakespeare and so on. So nobody has a chance to get fired up by anything at all. And here I would lean very far on one side. In other words, if if your resources uh, only allow you to go very deeply into Shakespeare and not very much else, then don't sacrifice going deeply into Shakespeare just because at the moment you can't provide you know, similar coverage to everything. It's very, very important that people really get sufficient exposure to this. On the other hand, we now, we now can move in the multicultural direction more effectively. I don't know about, I mean, I used to know about university level, right? because we do have people who are really very well versed with some of these other cultural traditions, who are pedagogically very alive, who can get them across in a very powerful way and um, meet the requirement I'm, I'm uh, asking for. That is to taught in a lively enough way with enough depth and breadth that there's some hope that people can actually, wow, pick up on something. And we can you know, make a plan, at least in the university, steadily to increase this as long as we aren't hamstrung by the idea that unless we do it all, you know, this year, we're somehow not meeting some requirement of justice or fairness. 
Taylor's idea that new courses of study should be introduced only when they can be taught passionately and in depth reflects his general approach to the politics of recognition. Circumstances modify principles. There is no one right way or single universal answer. Respect for difference demands variation. Common interests demand common institutions. The proper balance between the two has to be discovered on a case-by-case -case basis. Taylor takes the same approach to the question of whether ethnic or religious schools should receive public funding and support. Here again we have one of these standing dilemmas. We have to find some place in the middle or some place that uh, maximizes. The, there is no doubt that on one hand there are real advantages to having schools in which everybody's mixed in. You know, it's quite impressive in Montreal now under <clears throat> Bill 101, for instance, how getting all these immigrant children into French-speaking schools, them being together with, uh, you know, Quebecois de Souche, whatever the word is, and yes, old-stock Quebecers, has changed everybody, all the players in this, the old-stock Quebecers as well as the others, and been very important to their forming friendships and understanding across that. So you can see a real example where there's a real advantage to having everybody in the same school, except that, it's also important, as I said early, that different groups can feel that their identities are really being listened to, carried over, and so on, as they define them. And <clears throat> this is going to mean that for some groups, it's going to be very important to have their own schools. And I can't see, again, one saying that one of these principles is preeminent over the other, and that you can just, in virtue of the nature of democracy or whatever, just decide from the beginning that we're going to take one of these and run with it, and therefore, I mean, take, let's say, the common school, run with it, and therefore say, no, your request for a Jewish school or a Catholic school or whatever is just not receivable, no, no way. And so we have to find a way of allowing that possibility, but I think Ideally, we should try to find a way of encouraging as many as possible to be in a common school, but people have to be persuaded to that. In other words, we have to decide in democracy to what people, I mean, very good goals, but to which people have to be persuaded to adhere, and if they can't be, then so, so be it. And other things like paying your income tax where, you know, no one's going to ever ask you your, your opinion, you've just got to do it. Now, I think that when you have things like paying income tax, the whole society depends on, on that, um, even conscription in certain cases in war, I think you have a case for making this mandatory. But when you have goals that are of the form, you know, we have a, in some ways a better society if it would be good if and so on, then you actually defeat your purpose by, uh, because very often the, the goodness of those conditions depends on their being voluntarily agreed to. And I think there you undercut the, even the, the point of the operation if you begin to make those things mandatory. So the fact that uh, in some ways it would be good if we all were in a common school system is not a good ground to say to people, no, you cannot have your own school. Charles Taylor argues that the questions raised by multiculturalism demand a dialogue. And a dialogue, by definition, is an encounter whose outcome cannot be predicted. 
he accepts that recognition is a real need, whose absence can inflict real harm. But he doesn't think that any set of universal principles can settle the practical questions that are entailed in trying to address this harm. Sometimes the answer may lie in the direction of more inclusive common institutions, and sometimes in the direction of separate institutions for separate groups. Accordingly, in what follows, I want to look at both cases, beginning with the argument for public support for groups that want their own schools. For nearly 15 years, the Canadian Jewish Congress has been campaigning for state support for private Jewish schools in Ontario. British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba and Quebec now grant partial aid to private religious schools, but Ontario, excepting Roman Catholic schools, does not. In the early 1980s, when the government of Bill Davis extended funding for Catholic schools to grade 13, it had previously stopped at high school, it put the question of support for other private schools to a commission headed by Bernard Shapiro, now the principal of McGill University. He recommended that such funding be given by granting private schools associate status within public boards. The government shelved the report. The succeeding Liberal government also procrastinated. Then the NDP took power in the early 90s, they at least were frank in saying that they would never fund private schools. So the Canadian Jewish Congress, along with the Alliance of Christian Schools, went to court to test the constitutionality of a system that gave public support to Roman Catholic schools but to no other denomination or religion. The Supreme Court, where the case ended, answered equivocally in November of 1996. Nothing prevents the Ontario government from funding private schools, the court said, but current Catholic education rights in Ontario do not constitute unfair discrimination, it went on, because they are part of the political deal that created Confederation and not an instance of a universal right. Bernie Farber is with the Ontario section of the Canadian Jewish Congress and has been involved in the question of government funding for Jewish schools for many years. He thinks that the Supreme Court took too narrow a view of minority rights within Confederation. When the fathers of Confederation were carving out this wonderful deal that became Canada, and they were looking at minority versus majority rights, there were about 150 Jews in the province of Ontario, and very few other minorities in the province of Ontario. The minority was the French-speaking Catholic or Roman Catholic population. I would like to think that the Fathers of Confederation were far-sighted uh, as opposed to the government of today. I think what they were looking at was ensuring that minority rights forever are protected in Ontario and in Quebec. And in fact, if one were to extend that, today the minorities include Jews and Muslims and, and, and other uh, re religious groups. And it was for that reason that we believe these rights should have been extended. However, the bottom line is they were not. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada said that Ontario was correct in its interpretation that it did not have to fund independent schools based on the fact that they're funding Catholic schools. But, it's a very important but, because it brings us all the way back to 1984 again. Yes, they said that, in fact, it's a political decision. And, and if the government wishes to, as a political decision, it certainly can fund independent schools. And so here we are, you know, back another 15 years, 
having to dance the political dance with the present conservative government. And it's déjà vu all over again. The main argument of the Canadian Jewish Congress and its partners in their case to the Supreme Court was fairness, or equal recognition, in the terms Charles Taylor used earlier. Jewish schools follow the Ontario curriculum and operate within the province's civic traditions. So how can it be right, Bernie Farber asks, to fund one kind of religious school and not another? We live in an area that's relatively multicultural in northern North Toronto. Uh, on either side of me live two Catholic families, and we get along exceedingly well. However, my neighbor on the right side has children who are of school age, and their children go to a Roman Catholic school literally right around the corner. School bus picks them up, takes them to a Roman Catholic school. They don't pay a cent, and I don't begrudge them that. I think it's marvelous. If my children wanted to go to, or if we wanted to send our children to a Jewish day school, we would have to arrange for bus transportation. We would have to pay tuition of approximately $7,000 per child. And I think back, and I, I look at this, and I think to myself, am I any less a citizen than my next-door neighbor? Why is that my next-door neighbor has this right to educate his children in, in, in his faith paid for by the government, but I, a Canadian citizen, I pay the same taxes as he does, I, I, I contribute in the same way to society as he does, do not have that right. And, and it, it's something we try to impress upon the courts. The courts, of course, take a very distant... They, they, my experience with the courts were they're not passionate in their look on things. They don't look inside of people's heads. They don't look inside of people's hearts. They're just looking at the strict application and interpretation of the law. But what they're missing is this issue of fairness, of equity. I, I am as equal a citizen as anybody else, and I don't have the same rights. It just comes down to that. Why are parents sending their children to Jewish schools? Generally speaking, within the Jewish tradition, there has been this historical understanding of the need to continue this issue of continuity within Judaism is something that has been literally inbred into our minds from, from day one. And it, there's a history behind it. I mean, there's been no other people on the face of this earth that historically have been challenged as the Jewish people have. In, in, in this century alone, there was an attempt to wipe out Judaism as a living, breathing tradition, uh, and, and it almost succeeded. And so, as Emil Fackenheim, a very famous modern-day Jewish philosopher, once said, we are, there is an 11th commandment in Judaism, and that is never to give Hitler a posthumous victory by walking away from your Judaism. And the position that many Jews take is that in order to imbue their children with uh, all that Jewish life is all about, they have to be taught the precepts of the Torah, they have to be taught the Hebrew language, and that there is a, an atmosphere of Judaism which can be inculcated only in a, in a full school environment. We are, after all, historically, the people of the book. That's what, that's what Jews are. And so for those modern Jewish families who sincerely believe in that, of which there are many, the Jewish day school system is the only way to accomplish this end. There's also another reason, uh, especially for those who are uh, on the Orthodox uh, end of things, the, the uh, modern-day Orthodox. There are Jewish holy days, uh, for example, of, of which can number up to 16 in, 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 any, uh, you know, in any current school year. There are laws, specific laws, centering around what can be eaten. 
and it's just not viable for these Orthodox children to be going to a public school and to be able to to meet the needs their their basic religious needs around food and holy days and and that kind of thing. So on the extreme end of those, you have those families. But the va- vast majority of Jewish families that send their children to Jewish day schools fit into this sort of modern look at Judaism and and their honest desire to have their children brought up Jewishly. And by the way, and this is you know. We have developed what I call myths and assumptions when it comes to the whole issue of the funding of independent schools. This myth, for example, that if we separate our children into denominational schools, in fact, we're doing them a disservice because we're separating them and, and, we, and, and they don't get to really play a real part in, in the everyday public life of what is Canada. Well, this is nonsense. It's complete nonsense. Um, I know of dozens and dozens of my own contemporaries who went to Jewish day schools who are today doctors and lawyers and engineers and architects who, who contribute to the public good. I know in, in, in the life of my own children, for example, and, and the children that they play with on, a, on our own street, many of them go to all kinds of different schools, be they Catholic schools, private schools, public schools. But you know, they come home and they play together in the backyard and they go out to the park on a Sunday. Uh, and it doesn't matter if they're black or white or Catholic or Jewish or Muslim. They can go to their separate schools, but they come back together and they still have to live within an environment, live within the community. And it just doesn't wash with me. It just doesn't wash. And I think it's, it's, um, it's one of those arguments that, that those who, who are against the funding of independent schools consistently put forward, and it doesn't work. As they put forward the myth of the destruction of the public school system if you fund uh, independent schools. Well, <laughs> I say, give me the proof. The proof for me is in the pudding. And the pudding in Canada is the fact that provinces in this country already fund independent schools. Uh, is a public school system in Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, British... Uh, is it falling apart? Of course not. Quite the contrary. In B.C., there was a report just last year from the public school system praising the funding of independent schools because it says it offers a challenge to the public schools. There hasn't been this uh, dispersion of of children from the public school into the separate or private school system as a result of funding in, in, in other provinces. It just has not happened. Why would it happen here? Those who oppose public funding of religious schools often argue, as Bernie Farber just noted, that separate schooling undermines citizenship by depriving students of a core of common experiences. Farber believes, on the contrary, that a solid grounding in one's own tradition often augments citizenship rather than diminishing it. When you have a better sense of where you've come from, I I really believe you know and you have a better sense of where you're going to. If you believe in, in what you are, I mean, really, isn't this what Canada is all about? I mean, if we're, we're living right now, and, and maybe our, our great-great-great-grandchildren will be able to make an assessment of, of whether this experiment will work. I believe it will work. Uh, this, this wonderful multicultural experiment that, that is this country, in which one can be Jewish and Canadian, in which one could be Muslim and Canadian, Italian and Canadian at the same time, not in, in a melting pot kind of an atmosphere as we have in the United States, but celebrate both. And it, it, it can work. You know, my father was a very devout Jew, but when he came to this country, I mean, he flew that Union Jack in front of our house, uh, you know, every Victoria Day. I mean, he was as proud to be 
a citizen of this country. I remember when, uh, as a child, we used to travel by train to the United States, and uh, when we came to the border crossings, we had uh, my father always had to show his what he called his citizenship papers, his citizenship papers, and he would pull them out, and he would proudly show it to the border uh, people or whoever they were, and then he would sit and he would show them to me again, and every time we went, he'd see, I'm a Canadian, but he wasn't any less Jewish. So it's 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 this. It's this wonderful experiment that we're that we're engaged in, and it's quite right that that a, a, you know a young child who is brought up within his own religious tradition or ethnic tradition understand understands what's what that's about. I, you know, I don't again I don't want to be judgmental. Does it make a better citizen? Maybe, but it certainly makes as good a citizen as anyone who goes to a public school system, if not better. Multiculturalism, as Charles Taylor argued earlier, mandates a stance, a presumption that other cultures are as worthy as our own, but not a definite policy. Those who take this stance generally agree that public education should be more variegated and more attentive to cultural differences. But there is deep disagreement about whether this requirement is best met by expanding public support for separate schools or by making the common schools more diverse. You've just heard Bernie Farber's argument that religious schools, operating within the same academic and civic framework as public schools, deserve public support. In the final section of tonight's program, you'll hear an argument for a broadening of the curriculum in the public schools. The two positions contrast, but don't necessarily contradict each other at least if one heeds Taylor's opinion that multiculturalism is not a question with only one right answer. Bob Davis is the author of a number of books on education, including What Our High Schools Could Be, Whatever Happened to High School History, and the forthcoming Mentally Skilled but Mindless, Skills Mania in Our High Schools. From 1975 until his retirement a few years ago, he taught history at Stephen Leacock Collegiate, a Scarborough, Ontario high school. While he was there, the racial composition of the student body changed rapidly, and by the early 90s, a school that had once been nearly all white was 13% black. Davis responded by introducing two courses on black history, one on Africa and the West Indies, one on the black experience in Canada and the United States since slavery. Both were part of the school's top-level academic program. They were open to all, Davis himself is white, but were taken mainly by black students. Opponents of multiculturalism have sometimes argued that diversifying the curriculum promotes separateness and retards integration into Canadian society. But Davis believes that the courses he taught had the opposite effect on his students. I think it made them more at home in our school, not less at home, that they feel now we have a little corner in our education here for our own history, which has been left out in a serious way. Uh, we are more at home here, and we don't have to just be at home on the basketball court. And we don't just have to be home producing a fashion show, right, or a talent show. We're in the academic program. 
And it's very important for them that it be academic. I inherited a bit of a situation where uh, uh, students felt they were given a kind of bull session black history, right? And I've heard some schools where they talk about sports and, uh, and rap the whole time. You know, it's a, it's a ter- disgusting kind of um, lowering of sights, right? Or when, when it's just in the general level program and not the academic program. No, I mean, these are very serious courses with lots of reading and lots of hard studying. And, and where you're expected to be there, uh, you know, and, and be on time. And that, that's another whole story I could tell you. I, I got a number of parents' meetings going. And one of them, I went out and knocked on about 60 doors. And so contrary to what the, the conventional wisdom is, which is the blacks won't come to parents' nights, and so on, they, you know, we had a huge meeting, nearly 100 people. And uh, a discussion about attendance and punctuality came up. And uh, I said, you know, you know the, your average attendance of your kids and punctuality is worse than the general. Why is that? Well, the teacher, I said, the teachers say that when they talk to your kids, they get attitude, right? And they argue. And they said, that's uh, outrageous. You know, you, we didn't hear about this. Call us up, you know. And what are they, scared? You know, tell our kids, don't give me that nonsense. You know, get here on time. And so, um, you know, the kids say, well, they're afraid of us. This is one of the good things that happens is that um, when there is an advocate, as as I was, in doing black history specifically, you get this cross-fertilization of discussion about how, how, how are blacks seen by the other teachers. And uh, I think the students were right. There's this arguing uh, tendency. Uh, it scared a lot of teachers, and they gave up reminding them to be there on time. Uh, later, we had a speaker uh, called Akua Benjamin from Ryerson who said, uh, uh, the, you know, if we talk about the relation of black kids to the police, we have to talk about how our kids talk back. And she said, if we didn't talk back, we'd still be slaves. So so that's one of the good things that resulted, I felt, was, you know, the, this kind of ferment about who are they, how are they being treated. And frankly, though, it... I saw this particularly in their student organization. In most schools, it tended to be to organize a fashion show. And in our school, there was a huge emphasis on bringing in educational speakers. And uh, they would get quite an attendance of white kids, too. And so I thought... um, No, people are wrong. It's the opposite. These students now feel more at home most of their time is still spent in the general uh, melting <laughs> approach that uh, is, is essential. But they had that piece of education which offered a security and knowledge that they wouldn't have gotten without it. At the end of the second year of black history at Stephen Leacock, students wrote personal or family histories. Bob Davis collected and published their essays, along with photographs and illustrations, in a series of handsomely designed books called Our Roots. I put the stress on their own personal histories 
it started to become a popular with some teachers to get them to talk to their parents and their relatives, and that's very good, I think. And I, I would say about half of my students took up that challenge. But I said the, uh, the, the bottom line is your own story. They uh, had just uh, spent time reading Maya Angelou's um, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and, and Malcolm X's autobiography. So when I pointed this out, they said, well, my life's uh, very boring compared to theirs. And so the, it was at, as a start, the, the technique was a little bit uh, uh, inhibiting. But in the long run, it, was, it became inspiring. And uh, it's quite remarkable, I think, what they, what they wrote. And I, I, in that sense, I'm, a, uh, I'm an incurable progressive in that I think self-knowledge is really, really important. And I, I think the left has all often been as bad as the right in ignoring that and, uh, you know, concentrating on principles and uh, things outside yourself. So this, was, this project helped that to uh, make up for that problem. What, tell me a little bit more what you mean by self-knowledge. Uh, well, students would say, uh, my life is boring. Well, you know, you need to spend some time now with them, you know. What, what, where have you lived? Then you find that they emigrated from uh, Jamaica when they were 13. You say, my God, that doesn't sound boring to me. Uh, how, how was it? Terrible. It was really terrible. Is that right? After a while, you'd get you see there's a whole lot in this person's life that is uh, very important, but they've never, to use uh, Hegelian language, they've never taken it up into consciousness. They, they've never th reflected on, hey, I, I had some r rough challenges there to deal with. And uh, I, it wasn't just that uh, we got into terrible clashes at home. See, there's a one of the great novels by Cecil Foster, who's done recently this one about an experience where the mother comes to Toronto ahead of time, ahead of her child. And I think the child is, as I remember, quite tiny. And by the time she's ready, you know, with, with the cash together that she wanted to get together to bring her child up, the kid's a teenager. And it's rough. It's very rough. Well, uh, there's quite a lot of kids in that bracket who have had that history. But uh, not many people, um, especially not many people, try to get them to think of it connected with education. To put it to a, a teacher or to put it to yourself in writing, it seems to me to be a very noble uh, aim of education. And it was something espoused by um, the British school of elementary education that Let's get beyond this uh, my summer vacation, you know, and my dog spot, these little <laughs> compositions that kids did, uh, and to something deeper, right? And uh, there was that great uh, flood of wonderful writing in the 60s when people caught on to this, teachers caught on to it. But it never seemed to hit the high schools much. It was thought to be a little kid's enterprise, you know, until we got serious, right, in high school and we got specializing and um, I just think that's wrong I think it should be there in high school too Bob Davis regards the black history program at Stephen Leacock as proof that education works best when it takes account of who the student is 
and incorporates that person's self-discovery into its curriculum. But he says that despite the program having been such a success, the principle of multicultural education is still contested and its future not assured. We had quite a battle about getting a proper teacher to replace me who could do those and was interested in those programs, right? Because there's no uh, specialty requirements in the um, negotiated by the teacher union and the board about uh, this as a specialty. It's too small at the moment to have that. And uh, none of the existing history department felt they were qualified to do it. And uh, there was a couple of people in English I thought might be able to and weren't, uh, didn't feel they were qualified, so they started searching. And it got to the point where we had to uh, have a, a, another parents' meeting and, and get really serious, and the principal came, and he, uh, he went out and found somebody who's carrying on. The program is still very vigorous now. So it's going on at... Um, uh, I I think the trend is to is to shrink them, but they the new ones are starting as well. So I don't know whether one can say that for sure at this point. It's just a supposition. Davis's supposition that multicultural education may now be shrinking is based first of all on the current ascendancy of a reform movement that is more interested in restoring education's common core than expanding its margins and second, on the success of the recent counterattacks that have been made against multiculturalism. Amongst the most celebrated of these attacks have been Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s The Disuniting of America, Reflections on a Multicultural Society, and in Canada, Neil Basundath's well-reviewed The Selling of Illusions, The Cult of Multiculturalism in Canada. Both of these books have argued that cultural recognition is a contrived need, that the preservation and celebration of immigrant or minority cultures is a private affair that should not concern public institutions, and finally, that failure to assimilate everyone to a common culture will produce a petulant and fragmentary society. Davis obviously disagrees. He doesn't disparage assimilation or deny that education should foster a common ethos, Rather, he believes that people's real contribution to society comes through an achieved understanding of who they are and where they've come from. Cultural identity and participation in civic life, on this view, are harmonious rather than antagonistic ends. Like Bernie Farber, he upholds the image of Canada as a cultural mosaic rather than a melting pot, as the United States is said to be. But Davis wonders, finally, whether this idea is now sufficiently appreciated. What is wrong, except that I guess it was ne never practiced, with the mosaic? Now, we, we, we used to think it was practiced, people like me, right? We, we thought Canada was... Well, Canada is different in some ways, but it's uh, the, those who, who have been uh, treated badly say, hey, hey, that's a big joke. It was a melting pot here, too. But... It's the ideal that I'm talking about that underlies my work. I mean, take my students. They were, they were taking one class out of four per day in black history. The other three were totally mainstream. And, and if you can consider that uh, over the four years, if they took two years 
of black history, and it's a very small percentage of their total education that was strictly on, on black matters. And so I think we have to try to do both. And the idea that you could be a proud uh, you know, African-Canadian or a proud Italian, to me, is still a very sacred idea. And its sacredness means something if it is supported by our corporate group through our corporate taxes. Yes, of course, you know, we're not going to tell them how to celebrate, uh, you know, Italian holidays. That's in their own families, right? But in something as important as schooling, see, I don't really think they can learn properly without these things in the curriculum. On Ideas Tonight, you've heard part 11 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. Our series continues tomorrow night with a program about school choice. A schedule of the series is available on the CBC website. Go to www.radio.cbc.ca and look for ideas. Tonight's program was produced by Alison Moss. The associate producers were Liz Nodge and Kathleen Pemberton. Technical direction by David Field. You can get a printed transcript of the series for $25 or a set of audio tapes for $90, and both those prices include taxes and handling. Write to us at Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sintley. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers.